Hey there, everybody. This is your host, Sean King, with My Youth on Record. I'm sitting out this episode, and filling in for me is Stefan Brackett. He's interviewing the comedian Dan Cummings. Hope you guys enjoy. And he can tell by their body language and their expressions and everything that they hated their jobs. And he had this like epiphany. He's like, those guys don't even like what they're doing. And they're going to do it for eight hours today. And they're going to do it for eight hours tomorrow. Like they're working at it. What if I put that much work into what I actually love? Like what could I do with it? And I found uh, doing it for almost 20 years now that the guys I started with, the ones that treated it like a job, had fun, but like worked at it, really worked at it compared to the ones who just kind of dicked around and scratched their notebook and lived a life that they thought was the life of a quote-unquote artist, which is just laying around, you know, beating the system by not doing anything. None of those people went forward, not one. Welcome to My Youth on Record, a podcast where musicians share the music they created as teens and the stories behind their songs. My name is Mona, and I'm super excited to be joining Sean King as your co-host for another season of My Youth on Record. Comedian Dan Cummins has many accolades, including releasing a top 10 comedy album in 2009, a Comedy Central special called Crazy with a capital F, and most recently, his hit podcast, Time Suck. Dan joined us in the studio today to discuss what it was like bouncing between Las Vegas and a small town in Idaho while dealing with his feelings of anger. How did he channel all that energy into a successful career in comedy? Let's listen to learn more. Can you, as we're just kicking this off, yeah. give us a snapshot of high school Dan? Ooh, uh, high, sc- high school Dan was split into two parts because I went to two, I had two very different high school experiences because I, my first two years were in Las Vegas, Nevada mm. uh, with a, a high school that had about 2,600 kids. And my second two years of high school were in Riggins, Idaho with 100 kids total wow. in high school and 400 and some in the town. So, and that's where I went, lived before freshman year of high school. So my first two years, it was like a very different experience. You know, I grew up in a small town, went to this, uh, you know, big city where I knew nobody, mm. had no friends, went to this huge high school where I, it's like I stuck out like a sore thumb. I was very odd man out. And that sent me on a path of juvenile delinquency. <sighs> I chose a path. I shouldn't say that because that makes it sound like it's not my fault. Or did I the chose path choose path. you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an argument, I guess. But I, yeah, I got into a lot of crime and stuff uh, in Las Vegas and then brought some of that back with me to Idaho and then kind of cleaned up my act by the time I graduated. Tell us more about like that path what was what was even leading to those feelings or you know what looking back it is funny now because now i'm older like analyzing yourself where uh my parents you know uh divorced when i was like seven and it was a very angry divorce like very angry uh you know with definitely some you know like you know like i'd see them fight like physically fight like it was crazy and so and then my dad was gone and and then i kind of had this uh i was like a daddy's boy and really wanted to spend time with my dad never got to see him very much for the next several years and so I started spending summers with him, like I think junior high, like eighth grade. And then, you know, just wanted to spend more time with him just mm-hmm. to have that bonding. And so I was supposed to come back to Idaho at the end of the summer, right before freshman year of high school, where I had all my friends and everything. And I just said, nope, uh, I want to stay here. And then, and then, and then it was not what I expected it to be. Mm. Uh, you know, it's like I kind of put my dad on this crazy pedestal that wasn't who he was. Not that he's a terrible guy, yeah. but he's just not the guy that I had put up, kind of built up in my head. 
and and looking back, I was and I had this stepmom that I just did not get along with. Uh, she turned out to be a pretty terrible person, actually, and I was very angry. And instead of like being confrontational, you know, with my family or anything, my anger just like channeled into uh, anarchy kind of things. Mm-hmm. And I just started like setting fires, uh, breaking in, th- you know, places, stealing stuff, shoplifting all the time. Just like whatever just caused mayhem and mm-hmm. destruction was like my whole focus <laughs> outside of school. And I was very sneaky. Like I got good grades. I wanted to go to college still. So I still focused on getting my schoolwork done. Mm. And and I didn't have that many friends. I was pretty quiet in school and stuff. So like nobody would have known I was the kid doing that kind of stuff. Um, and then my dad randomly moved back to where I was already living before in Riggins, Idaho, before junior year of high school. So then I went back to where my friends were, but I had changed, mm. you know, from the kid I was when I left. And then kind of fell in with the, you know, the small town equivalent of like the rougher kids or whatever. And then just continued that mayhem for about another year. And then and then had a very like a distinct moment where uh, I was working at a grocery store that my mom had got me the job at. And I was stealing stuff all the time. And I got caught essentially, but not, not totally red-handed. They knew that I did it, but they couldn't prove it. And I wouldn't admit to it. And they basically said like, well, we're going to keep your eye on you and stuff like that. And please do. But then my mom pulled me aside like they told her and she could tell. I wouldn't admit to her, but she knew that I did it. And that look of just such disappointment, I was like, oh, man, it's like a mirror. Mm. And then from that day forward, never stole again. Like I just – it was like a switch. And I was like, all right. I I just thought about like where is this going? And I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. Like I I don't – it made it real somehow. Yeah. It was like a weird game for a couple years and I would rationalize it. It's crazy how you can rationalize. And I was like, well, I'm just taking from companies. You know, they're screwing the little guy anyway. You know, it's like whatever. I was very good at like rationalizing worse and worse kind of behavior. And then then after that, my senior year of high school, I just focused on like I want to get out of this town. Mm. And so my whole focus was I got to get out of this little tiny town where it wasn't that I wasn't popular. I mean there's not really cliques in in a school that small. But I just – there's a lot of people who would stay in this small town and kind of have, you know, what I considered to be not the best small town mentality. It was very uh, culturally homogenous, all white, uh, a lot of like racial ignorance, you know, where it's like – I would say like theoretical racism is what I would call it because I'm like, you think that you're racist, but you've literally never met a single person of the race you supposedly don't like. Mm. Not one time. So like what – like – and I just, I knew I wanted to get out of that. And yeah. then, and then, so that was my, my, I didn't really spend, I didn't date or anything really in high school. It was just all like, get me out of here. I didn't love my home life. I didn't love living with my dad anymore. So I was like, get me out. And then when I went to, uh, I got a bunch of, uh, uh, I guess like financial, it was kind of like, like a series of little scholarships and grants and stuff and some loans to go to Gonzaga. And, and a lot of people consider Gonzaga very culturally homogenous, but to me, comparatively, it was very different. And it was people who cared about learning and it was – it felt like I could breathe. Like it was like, oh, man, this is this is like my people compared to the people I had before. And I just felt like I was like for the first time like really fit in. And I loved college. Like when I was in college, I dreamed of just – my daydream would be just be, never having to leave. Yeah. Just like always having stimulating conversations, always learning, you know, always like being introduced to new ideas. Like loved it. Mm. Was there a soundtrack to that anarchy that you mm. were expressing as a teenager. Oh, man, Rage Against the Machine. Uh, I mean, I heard them a little late in it, but, uh, man, I, I, st- I love them to this day. But it's like that emotive kind of anger that he like that I like hear in his music. It's like I, I live, felt that like all the time. Uh, so, yeah, like that would be, I think, like the first, you know, Rage album, you know, Killing the Name of. 
like all those songs, you know, they still kind of like give me like, ah, get that adrenaline, you know, going to this day. And I think other than Rage, oh man, at that time, you know, I did get introduced to me. I didn't get introduced to a lot of music and Riggins. I mean, it would kind of trickle down late. We didn't have a radio station. This oh. is, you know, pre-internet. Wait, wait, no radio station? No radio station. It's very geographically isolated too. Oh. It's like in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I We did get MTV uh, th- through satellite TV um, right before high school. And that was when the grunge movement was just starting to kick off. And I remember like Allison Chains Dirt, uh, Soundgarden, um, Bad Motor Finger and Louder Than Love, the one before that. And then uh, uh, I think I already said Nirvana. Yeah, Bleach and Nevermind. And that, that was like, that became my kind of soundtrack too, I guess, like the next couple of years. Yeah. So I guess when I was doing that, it was a lot of grunge. It was like, I would say Rage Against the Machine and then also Nirvana, Nevermind was, I was like, what is this? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I asked that question because I often, I'm reflecting on my own teen experience. I feel like I would just embody the music and then I would like act as if I'm expressing oh, how yeah. it makes me feel. And mm-hmm. so I could, um, yeah, just seeing if there is a oh, connection yeah. between your you expressing this uh, anarchy or this right. resistance with some influence that you were hearing. Yeah, yeah th- anything that had like an anarchistic kind of tone, you know, like uh, <laughs> it's crazy, like I'm much more calm and stuff now. But yeah, for a long time, it's just like uh, that whole thing, like set the world on fire where it's like, yeah, there's definitely a part of me that wanted just to burn everything to the ground and just rebuild it in something that I thought was better, I guess, or mm. whatever. But yeah, a lot of, lot of anger, any kind of angry music, yeah. But, but that also says something to me a little bit about your early experience as a creative. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people would have had the impulse to burn something down. Right. End of story. Right, right. But you wanted to to build something up. Where, where were your, as a young creative, yeah. how was that manifesting? Were there even places or, or avenues well, for you to do that? I, I did music in college, like wrote my own. I, I tried a lot of different things, actually. Tried like short fiction, uh, poetry. Um, you know, did some sketch comedy for the theater, did some music, wrote a bunch of original songs, but I, uh, I always had like a really big imagination. Like when life wasn't working out like I wanted to as a kid, I feel like I developed a kind of a powerful imaginative life and always loved to daydream. And it's like, cause that's the world that I got, I could control. And so that became my, you know, my own little world. And I was reading like lots of fiction. Um, you know, Stephen King, I still love is like just kind of easy escapist kind of stuff. Um, and that's, that was a creative impulse for me. It's funny. Like when I really knew I grew up in such a small town that I didn't know anyone who did anything other than low-level blue-collar jobs. Like there was no law office in our town. There was no doctor. Like I didn't know that no one in my extended family had ever gone to college. Like it was like loggers, carpenters, you know, uh, shopkeepers, but like not like a store owner, you know, but like like a clerk or things. Mm-hmm. No one was really career-minded. And so – I just went to college because I knew that's what you're supposed to do to try to get some other kind of job, but I didn't know what kind of job that was going to be. And then I just thought like, well, you know, I like computers when I showed up at college. So I started off computer science. I was like, well, maybe I should do this. But I, I had creative things, but it, but it didn't feel like – it didn't feel like that's not a job I could do. Mm-hmm. Like I never – no part of me believed that like, well, I, I get to do that because I just – it seemed so vague. I'm like, how does that – I wouldn't know where to begin. And then I took some kind of – personality assessment or career aptitude, maybe it's more career aptitude assessment. And I did, I was kind of startled by the results. Literally the only thing I matched up on, the only thing was artist. Hmm. 
Like it was like very strong matchup there and didn't match up at all with literally any other career path on the test. I was like, whoa. I was like, okay, uh, that was interesting. But I still didn't. I was like, well, that's, that's cute. I can do that. You know, I'll get a real job, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And then maybe I'll come up with some creative hobby. And, but I noticed like with creative pursuits, I always took it more seriously and got more into it than the people around me. Like we had a little college rock band and we started playing parties. And then I, my mind went to, I want to be a musician where other people were like, dude, we're just messing around. And then I'm going to go to law school. And then, and then like, <laughs> you know, like when we graduated and the band broke up, I guess I knew it was coming, but I didn't really think about it. And I was like, oh, we're just, this is done. And then now what do I do? Uh, yeah, college, college graduation was a real bummer for me because I, I felt super lost again. Didn't know what I was going to do. If you had more support creatively as a teenager, do you think you would have expressed that angst differently? Oh, 100%. Mm. Like, like if, if that would have been around and it's like somebody would have been talking to me, you know, and been like, hey, what if you did this? Like, oh, you're good at like I was really into sketching and doing lots of drawings when I was younger. But like no one ever said like, hey, you should do more of that. You know, you should pursue that. There's a class. I mean, the, the town again was so small. There wasn't an art class. Like there wasn't uh, art lessons that literally didn't exist. And I, and I don't think my family just knew. Like, uh, you know, my dad would looking back, he was just busy working as a carpenter just to like barely keep the bills paid. So he's working lots of hours. There was, there was no checking in on like, hey, how are you doing? You know, what are you interested in? Like literally never had those conversations. Yeah. Yeah, but for sure. I mean, that would have like, you know, I, th- I think set me on a path, you know, uh, a, a lot earlier. Dan's struggle with a verbally abusive stepmother could have landed him in a world of spite. Instead, he learned to keep his eyes on the future and prove those who doubted him wrong. What was the response from your friends or your family yeah. when you decided to go to college? Was it support? Was it college skepticism? was support. College was support. Uh, <laughs> and then after college was confusion mm. and, and, and like a lack of support because they expected me to go to grad school, get get something that would be like, like if your entire family tree had never had any kind of higher education. And it's like, there tends to be like small town, like my mom's thing was doctor and lawyer because in her brain, those are the things that successful people did. Mm-hmm. They were doctors, like they were lawyers. So she was hoping that I was going to go to law school or go back to some kind of grant and become some kind of professional, something that she could tell her friends, oh, my son's a doctor, mm. my son's this or something. And then I, I didn't know what I wanted to do uh, after college. And then when I started dabbling in stand-up uh, a year afterwards, it was not met with enthusiasm. Mm. <laughs> like it was not met with like, you know, awesome. It was met with like, ugh. What, but yeah, but how long, much longer are you going to mess around with this? I mean, my mom was not going to love this joke, but I did a joke uh, about her in my last stand-up special that we just recorded mm-hmm. uh, about her, like, you know, being very critical. And, and I kind of turn it in like a good thing, but it's like she might say like, oh, I, don't, I wasn't like that. But I'm like, she was where for 10, 12 years into stand-up, it was every check-in was how much longer are you going to do this? Mm-hmm. You know, when are you going to kind of stop doing this? Like she, because she, it, it doesn't make sense to her. Yeah. Now, even like now, even like I do the podcast, it's, it's doing well, but it doesn't make sense to her. It's not something she understands. So, you know, the bills are getting paid and she's happy for me and she's let it go after all these years. But, but yeah, not, a, not a lot of artistic support that way. Mm. They're happy, but they're proud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to make them look like bad people. They're proud. Oh, no, no, yeah, 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 yeah. Not, not at all. I mean, that yeah, was yeah. the reason I was also ask, asking the question. Yeah, yeah. Just, just, you see that happen sometimes in small towns. Like, okay, well we have yeah. this kind of hope that maybe right. you'll come back in some way that might 
elevate us if it's in reputation or even monetarily. It's just like, yeah. so I was just curious yeah, about that. And your sure. friends also were really supportive or you didn't have oh, a lot. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Like you know, I got more friends, my kind of friendship circle in college and they were um, for sure supportive. And then I think though, you know, it took me a while to kind of find my audience. And it's like, I got on little TV spots here and there and blips and then it would kind of fade. You know, you're not really selling that many tickets. And I think in some of the fading moments, I did have some concern from some college friends where it's like, you know, they're in more traditional career paths that are kind of moving forward at a steady, more controlled pace. And they would see me like bouncing around the country, you know, two kids, you know, trying to grind it out. And it's like, there was a little bit like a, man, things going okay. Or, you know, how much longer are you going to do this? Now, luckily the last couple of years, I'm like, ha ha, <laughs> I told you, you just gotta you know, like, give me some time. It's going okay. But yeah, that, yeah, I wasn't, um, compared to people I met in LA and stuff, I, I never came from a background surrounded by any kind of artist uh, at all. And even my friends in college, who I love, actually, I just had a, met my old college roommate today for lunch. She lives here in Denver. Um, but none of them were in the arts either. Or, and they also didn't come from artistic backgrounds. So I think there's just a lot of like, what are you, what are you doing? Mm. You know, just, it's just kind of confusion. Like they don't get it. Like, like even when things were going well and I would be in like a city doing shows, they'd be like, hey man, you can crash at our place. And I'm like, dude, they give me a hotel. <laughs> like I'm doing this for real. <laughs> like, but in their heads, they can, you could tell, like, they're, like, concerned and worried. So, yeah. Which makes sense. Even you seeing, like, artists on that computer or whatever test you had taken. Yeah. Being, like, not taking that serious in that moment. Right. And and even getting that reflection from yeah. your friends and family. Yeah. So I think I try and cut them some slack from, like, I didn't understand it either. You know? And then, but then I just once, uh... Once I saw that I could maybe make some money in this, like when I went to those first open mics and stand up, and I remember talking to this guy, Nick Tyson, never forget him. He was the guy who ran the first open mic I ever went to. And then he gave me some, some money, like a paid spot. Like it was kind of crazy looking back how it would not work this way in most scenes now, but they were desperate for new people. And it wasn't much. It was like 25 bucks or something for like some little spot at a, at a paid show. Mm -hmm. And that was when I was like, oh, I just made some money doing this. Like, that's, that's cool. It's not just like a hobby. And then I started asking questions and I found out about these college gigs you could get when you were young, early on. It's called NACA. It's still around. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and somebody told me what that was. And I was like, what? I could get like a thousand bucks a show doing this without being famous or having these things. I'm like, oh yeah. And, uh, and I was lucky enough a couple of years, like to get into that. But, but like that, that gave me like a light mm -hmm. or like a carrot. And I was like, I think I could maybe do that. And so I just initially set this goal and I don't know. Yeah. Like early on, luckily I was. Luckily, I did meet a few people in the stand-up scene who weren't dismissive, who weren't too jaded, and were very supportive. I'm, I'm very, I'll always be very thankful to Nick Tyson specifically. He was so supportive early on when I was like, I don't know, I had these student loan debt. You know, I was like, am I making just a terrible, terrible choice? Mm. And but he was the guy being like, No, man, you're funny. You're funny. You can do this. Like, there's you could you could make a living at this. And uh, and luckily. Yeah, with that support, I kind of kind of started doing it and started getting a little better, and it's been 19 years now. <laughs> I'm wondering about your major. Yeah. Given everything that we've said, because it wasn't in the arts, it was in right. psychology. Yeah. So what, what was uh, around that choice? Was that even more like still trying to get something real? Or? Trying to no, that was a little bit about like um, <laughs> trying to figure out. Uh, just myself a little bit. Mm. And I did think for a while it was kind of like whimsical a little bit too, like sophomore year. I think I just thought like, I, I really liked my intro to psychology class. And then I just thought like, oh, counselor, like that would be a cool, cause I wanted to work with uh, kids towards the end of college. Like, uh, and I did actually for, for six months out of college, I worked at a crisis treatment center. Um, 
so yeah, that was that was um that was more about uh I don't know, having a lot of stimulating talks with people freshman, sophomore year, coming from all these different backgrounds, figuring out what life was. And that's just the thing that resonated with me at that time was like, oh, cool. I could be a counselor. And then I think, to be totally honest, I think I watched a few movies too where there was like some cool counselor characters. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I could, some I dangerous like, minds. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely a little bit like Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> oh. I was like, maybe maybe I could be an FBI profiler or something. I mean, they had all kinds of thoughts. <laughs> all but of all in the world of like uh, um, of counseling, yeah. So I saw that you'd done a brief amount of work at a residential treatment facility. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily the best experience, but I'm also wondering, yeah. a lot of the times, and we find this even here in Youth on Record, yeah. a lot of the times the people who choose to do this work have right. also experienced some of the trauma that our students have gone through. Oh, yeah, through. yeah, yeah. So do you think that had anything to do with your desire to find to, to do that work? or uh, I think so. Yeah, a little bit, you know, where it's like, uh, I know I was lucky. I didn't uh, suffer any, like, uh, you know, crazy physical abuse or anything, but I definitely had a stepmom in high school who was uh, very, like, verbally and emotionally abusive and just, uh, looking back, I think pretty mentally ill. And so I, de I definitely could relate to, like, not loving your home environment mm -hmm. and not having a supportive home environment and all that kind of stuff and and, and looking for a way out and look at, yeah, that, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. I think it helped, you know, and, and just being, again, a little bit of the delinquent that I was, you know, it's like it, when these kids, I wasn't judgy, you know, that way where I was like, yeah, man, I get it. Mm -hmm. I used to do, yeah. you know, same stuff, you know, I was, I was trying to pull off the same scams. It's like, I get it. Yeah. So I, I, th I think it was probably, probably that probably did shape it really like, you know, wanting, but, but, and then also, you know, uh, part of it was I'd gotten a random work study job when I was thinking about psychology and child protective services. Mm -hmm. And it blew me away where it's like, you know, I had my little things in high school, but they paled in comparison to the things these other kids had experienced. So I was like, oh my God, like I'd read these case files and I'm like, that's this kid's life. Mm -hmm. And then, and then it was definitely like, uh, I, I, that cemented the idea of like, I want to, I want to help these people, you know, like I want to help these kids, uh, yeah, just, just have better lives and get out of these horrible situations. And so just even thinking about that, yeah, if you were to write down the chapter headings of your high school survival guide, yeah, what would they have been? <sighs> You know what? It'd be, it'd be, it'd be yeah. like, like keep your head down. Like keep pushing oh, forward. Mm -hmm. Maybe keep pushing forward is better. But I, I was <laughs> keep. But I did have this thing. Like I knew, <laughs> like it's crazy, but I knew in high school that I couldn't confront my dad and stepmom with any positive results. Like it was a defense mechanism of just like you're just gonna take this, but you're gonna get out of this soon. Like if you can like focus on school, kind of. I, I went inward. Mm -hmm. And I focused on my imaginative life and I focused on like my schoolwork and all that kind of stuff, knowing that if I could get, you know, into school and get this, that I could just get away from them as opposed to like, uh, I was cognizant of like, if I ran away or got like heavy into drugs and stuff like that, I'm like, then they win. Not that they wanted that. My stepmom, I think part of her would have, okay. uh, she was a really destructive kind of person and stuff like that. So, so definitely, I mean, a lot of, you know, my fuel was, I'm going to prove her wrong. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to let her kind of win. And, and I do think that was... You know, sometimes you're in a position where you don't have – It's and I learned this with the red tape. It's sad, but it's true. The social worker isn't going to be able to get you out of the home. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to be able to help you. If you run away, where are you going to go? You know, and it's like – so there is that, you know, obviously in cases of extreme like, you know, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse or certain situations where you do just got to like figure out how to get out of there. But if it's something where it's somebody who's just <laughs> an asshole, you know, or something or it's like – Maybe should you weigh this like, okay, this isn't good, but I know this isn't good, but can I just put up with this for two more years mm -hmm. and then I'll be away from it forever? 
And, and I mean, it, it did work for me because then once I got out, I was out, you know, th then we didn't like shortly after that, we didn't talk again. Uh, she died like 10 years ago, but I didn't talk to her for like the last 10 years of her life. Like not, not a word, you know, but, but it's like, but I had to, I had to get, I had to get to uh, graduation day first. Mm -hmm. So, so I, and I have always thought that way in life. Like some people get very angry and impulsive and make good short-term decisions, terrible long-term decisions. And it's, and I always think like, don't let them win. Don't let them win. What's, what's the best for you long-term? Don't let this like, you know, person like, you know, put you in a bad spot that makes you do some crazy things that are going to like leave you in a bad spot for many years to come. I really like that philosophy. I think that's something that, you know, our teaching artists here and our yeah. mentors here at Youth on Record are always trying to instill in our youth that like, you are worthy of you yes. investing in the yeah, long game. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Nope, absolutely. Absolutely. Because they're, you know, the home life can often speak narratives that are the right, opposite Right, right, which is, you know, and that's tough, you know, it's tough when you're inside of that. If you have somebody telling you that you're, you know, a piece of shit all the time, it's like, it's it's hard to, if no one else is around telling you otherwise, you know, it's like, that's how people get stuck in that uh, cycle of just repeating that because, you know, like they're in this little, you know, echo chamber of negativity. And so that's great that you guys have what you're doing where it's like, you can show them like, nah, like they're wrong, you know, they're wrong. Look what you're doing here. Look what we see in you. Oh, that's awesome. And it, the philosophy that you laid out seemed yeah. perfectly in line to a young person who listens to Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not going to let them win. I'm right. not going to do what they right. tell me. And even, yeah. if the, even if those people aren't telling you to obey, they were telling you right. that you're not going to succeed. Right. Dan shares a comedy song he wrote around 15 years ago about a woman named Karen and his stances on corporate America. He also gives us insight on how to turn creative processes from a hobby to a career. Let's listen in. Dan, thank you yeah. for, for being willing to yeah, go to, through this. Oh man, I haven't heard this in and, so long. And just to let people know, like there was Ugh. still like the CD was still shrink wrapped. So, <laughs> so I, I think that I Dan sold these at one time, <laughs> which is sad. Dan came in like I don't think you've listened to this in a very long time. No, no. Yes. Uh -uh. Corporate America, <laughs> I feel your pain. Oh my God. <laughs> Corporate executive, I was number one again in sales last month. Let's go discuss my promotion. Keep working hard, is what you say. As you dump a stack of papers on my desk, you son of a oh, corporate a-hole. If you were kinder, we wouldn't say a thing. Behind your back. I don't even remember like what words I'm gonna say. Like when you're gone. <laughs> People say you got a funny shaped head And to be honest, it's a little bit lopsided on the left what? Do you remember who you were talking about? Vaguely, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah Remember the meeting with Baron Financial late last month I changed all the terms and stuff I brought you a latte And then you were rude to me, but you didn't know I was in the men's room. Oh my God! Where I, I pulled my pants down Jesus. and took the lid off your cup, poured a little Java down <laughs> the toilet. Then I filled your cup back up. 
pissing in their cup because they were rude to me. That's pretty extreme. <laughs> uh, so much more like judging, like, oh, these guys are rude to me. So fuck all of corporate. You know, like <laughs> I immediately go to this extreme of like, I remember the people. I remember it was specifically it was, it was Karen. It wasn't it was a, it wasn't a dude. <laughs> the real person was Karen, and I hated her so much. Because she seemed so soulless to me and just, like, didn't care. She seemed so phony. Mm-hmm. I was so naive about certain things. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so naive. And so I went in there. I'm like, oh, yay, we're just here to do fun, fun stuff and, you know, and help. And, and they're like, well, yeah, but also you got to hit this and this marker and you got to do this and push that and push this. And I was like, I don't, but I don't think that's healthy. And they're like, well, we don't know that for sure. Just go ahead and, <laughs> you know, push that. And then it just, yeah, just built again. Like the angst came back. But that, that was maybe – yeah, the the rage against the machine vibes underneath. It's like, ah, let's, let's tear this company down. Let's <laughs> well, thank you so much for being brave <laughs> <Jesus>. enough. To- <laughs> uh, this is a painful to listen to. <laughs> I mean, how long has it been since you've even heard that song? Oh, easy 15, 16 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now I remember. I remember the guitar and stuff. I remember putting the capo strap on the second fret. I can I can picture the it was very similar to the chord progression it was like kind of like a, an oasis song actually mm. it was but just uh, a little bit you know capoed up there a little bit uh, it's been so long since I've even put on a put a hat held a capo in my hand <laughs> uh, yeah yeah funny um, being that we do um, being that we do work with yeah. young people in such a formative uh, time period in life I'm wondering if you were to give a point of advice of being yeah. an artist um, to a 16-year-old, what would Balls that be? Balls to the wall. Go for it. Like, don't go for it half-assed. Like, if you really love it and you pursue it, uh, I read something early on that stuck with me, uh, and I was glad I read it when I started comedy, but it was this old interview book. Franklin Ajay, he was the, he called him the jazz comedian. He never got really big. He became mm. like a, a college professor uh, down in like UCLA or somewhere. And, you know, taught kind of comedy stuff. But he he worked with enough of, like, uh, the bigger acts where he interviewed, you know, all these different comedians that were popular in, like, the 80s and things. Mm-hmm. And there was a Seinfeld. His comedy never really spoke to me, but his, inter- but his interview, this interview spoke to me where he said he was sitting in a coffee shop early on in his career. And, he you know, I don't know. He was writing, like, half an hour a day, hour a day, and then just kind of dicking around the rest of his day and whatever, enjoying not having to have a day job. Mm-hmm. But not really working at his craft. And then he's sitting in this coffee shop and he's looking out the window and he sees these guys who are working on road construction. And he can tell by their body language and their expressions and everything that they hated their jobs. And he had this like epiphany. He's like, those guys don't even like what they're doing and they're going to do it for eight hours today and they're going to do it for eight hours tomorrow. Like they're working at it. What Mm. if I put that much work into what I actually love? Mm. Like what could I do with it? And I found uh, doing it for almost 20 years now that with the guys I started with, the ones that treated it like a job – had fun, but like worked at it, really worked at it compared to the ones who just kind of dicked around and scratched their notebook and lived the life that they thought was the life of a quote unquote artist, Mm. which is just laying around, you know, beating the system by not doing anything. None of those people went forward, not one. The majority of the people who really worked at it and really like have made livings and a lot of them, some of them become pretty famous, uh, and, and, but all of them done you know, pretty well for themselves. And so, yeah, if, if you're getting into something and you like, you know, you love music and you love doing this, especially when you're young and the stakes are lower, when you can recover mm. career-wise easier, man, go hard, yeah. go really hard, you know, like give it everything you have, you know, like, uh, 
you know, when you're when you're older, you're not gonna be like, man, I wish I would have played more fucking video games. <laughs> you know, when I was 16. You know, I wish I would have. I wish I would have ate more pepperoni pizza and just you know laid around and just not done anything. No, man, this is your chance. Mm-hmm. You know, give it give it a fair treatment. So yeah, just do what you love and you'll get better. And the better you get at it, the more you will love it. The more rewarding it will be. And pretty soon you won't even want to do the things you thought you were uh, mm-hmm. uh, going to do because you want to avoid work. Your work will become more fun than any video game. More fun than any kind of like hang. It'll become like your soul. Mm. I love, I that, love too. that. Would the sixteen-year-old version of you, yeah, be hyped about where you are now? You know what? I think so. I think so. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, like a couple years ago, I say, <laughs> uh, 16 year old version of me might've been like, oh man, it's looking, looking like a little precarious, you know, but like, but now, yeah, because you know, that it's funny, that rage against the machine thing. It's, uh, that's where my career is at now where, uh, several years ago, the industry, I, I was just kind of reading the writing where I was, you know, getting to my like late thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, casting wise, and this isn't like me, like making something up. It's just like what you would literally hear kind of on the down low from casting. They're like, if we're not looking for a late thirties white dude. Like the, the, the market's flooded. Mm-hmm. Like they don't, we don't, we got it. We got that guy. And, uh, and so you think like, oh shit, like there's, there's not a place for me, like, you know, here necessarily. And I kept trying to go through the traditional channels of like, kind of like, you know, to go through the system and go through the system. And I got angry and I got mad that nobody wanted this podcast idea. And I decided I'm going to put all my energy into my own thing and build my own little world, which is what I'd always done as a kid anyway. And it worked. And now what's cool is now we have like our own little, you know, system where we're able to give to charities. We're able to like, you know, hire employees, give them cool jobs, do super weird creative things. And nobody, it's just us, it's just me and the fans, mm-hmm. you know, and as long as they like it, then I get to keep doing it. And so to me, it's like, you know, I, I kind of many years later did become that Rage Against the Machine where it's like, you know, the world wasn't uh, the what I wanted it to be. So I made my own. Mm-hmm. You know, and it works. So I think I'd be pretty happy. I'd be pretty happy with that. And I'm not, and I'm not setting shit on fire anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably good too. Yeah. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your yeah, time. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for your charitable contributions. Thank you for like showing up for, yeah. for causes all over and for youth. And um, thank you for doing funny stuff and making thought-provoking content. Oh, yeah. You bet. I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah and kids, listen, man. Fuck the man. Just do it. Do it your way. You don't need the system. You don't need it. Build your own. Great ending. (laughs) (laughs) My Youth on Record is proudly brought to you by Youth on Record, a Colorado nonprofit organization where local teens are empowered to find their voice and value by working with local musicians as their educators. Teens and Youth on Records programs are working to be both the next generation of creatives as well as community leaders. They do this through music, poetry, and storytelling. My Youth on Record is one of their newest programs. Learn more at www.youthonrecord.org. A big shout out to Oso Motley for our theme music this season. They came to the studio in Denver, jammed with some of the Youth on Record students, and we couldn't be happier. Thanks so much. 